Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you're listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 137, The Esoteric Yamakus. In this episode, we're going to talk about a few quite different ways in which the esoteric is deployed in Yamblichus's writings, and yes, in his actual teaching activity, because seemingly his school really was a kind of philosophic mystery academy, not wholly unfamiliar to people who have studied modern occultism or who are themselves occultists, or at least arguably like modern occultists. That's how he presents his school. So we'll start with that stuff. What kinds of esoteric goings-on were afoot in Yamlikus' school? We'll then turn to the related topic of how he constructs his lineage, the multiple modes of transmission of the truth, always highly esoteric, through history and through exalted states of consciousness available only to a philosophical and theurgical elite. And last but not least, we shall turn to the ineffable in Yamlikus, a beautiful locus for hiding and revealing, rooted not in social forms, but in reality itself, as Yamlikus sees it. So, first of all, Yamlikus, the esoteric life of a late polytheist sage. With Yamlikus and his school, I think it's safe to say that we've entered a new phase in our discussion of the late Platonist esoteric. As we saw in our episodes on Plotinus and Porphyry, there's plenty of esoteric discourse in their philosophies. Both philosophers posit a wisdom tradition, including Plato, but not beginning with Plato, predicated on an esoteric transmission of wisdom. Both emphasize the ineffable nature of higher reality and the ineffable experiences or modes of knowing appropriate to those higher reaches of reality, and claim these elevated states of consciousness for themselves, crucially. There is a secret, and it's hiding in plain sight, but only those privy to noesis, and to noesis's mysterious self-transcending capacity, can truly encounter it. Both of these elements of the esoteric are pretty well represented in the Middle Platonists we've discussed in this podcast as well. And with Plutarch and Numenius, we even got glimpses of explicit readings of Plato, which explain how and why he was an esoteric writer while Philo and Clement simply make Plato an exegete of the even deeper esoteric philosophy expounded by Moses. Now, Porphyry goes further in adding that Plotinus was privy to secret teachings of his teacher Ammonius, teachings which, however, he later revealed. And Porphyry also tells us that Plotinus was reluctant to publish his philosophy in written form, but did so anyway classic tropes of hiding and revealing. But Porphyry also tells us that Plotinus was generous with his wisdom, that all comers were invited into his circle, that he was anything but arcane or hieratic in his daily doings. So we don't get any sense that Plotinus's school was an esoteric order with inner and outer teachings or anything like that. This is where Iamblichus and his school seem to have entered into different esoteric territory than these earlier Platonists. Iamblichus's teaching milieu, insofar as we can reconstruct it, seems truly to have modeled itself on a kind of esoteric priestly practice. Now, Eunapius's Lives of the Sophists gives us many, many gems of this sort of thing 
We've already seen Iamblichus performing at least one miracle in the podcast, summoning up in bodily form two beautiful youths who emerged from the hot springs of Gadara. This anecdote is the tip of an iceberg, an iceberg so wonderful in its details that, well, gentle listeners, we feel the need to devote one of our special storytime episodes to exploring Eunapius's account of late antique philosophic practice. The stuff is just too good to pass over in, well, esoteric silence. So all will be revealed in a special episode, which, however, will still be esoteric, since only the initiated elite of the Schwepp membership will be able to listen to it. But in this episode, we will make a few remarks. First of all, Eunapius's view of what it is to be a philosopher, or to be one of the greats, which is clearly how he views Iamblichus and his prominent students, involves the exercise of what we might call supernatural power, achieved through contact with the higher realities. The noetic realms no longer just give you eternal insights into the underlying truth about things, as they once did for Platonists. They give you the ability to make statues move and to exercise clairvoyance. The genre of writing here has been called late pagan hagiography, and with reason, in that this sort of thing was sometimes at least written in direct response to Christian claims about their saints. And this Christian literature and uh, oral tradition about saints was really flourishing at this time, the late 3rd and early 4th century. Indeed, as we discussed with Daniel Ogden way back in episode 6, the astonishing miracles attributed to Apollonius of Tiana in Philostratus's life of that great sage, written, we recall, in the earlier 3rd century, so not that long before Iamblichus's own day, see episode 65, these can likely be interpreted as responding to this very Christian literature of saints. You've got saints? Well, we've got even better saints. Check out the amazing things Apollonius did. Eunapius is also an imperial-era sophist, like Philostratus, and he's living in sort of the same thought world of miraculous, wonder-working holy men. But things have gotten, well, even more magical as the 3rd century has progressed. Iamblichus and his students live by an astrologically timed routine of divine rituals, they make sacrifices according to Kairos, the auspicious moment determined through Catarchic astrology. They conduct divinations. They generally engage in a lot of occult practice. And this we don't find so much in Philostratus' account of Apollonius. But this is, I think, both a sign of the times and a sign of Iamblichus's hieratic form of Platonist philosophy as he presents it. The philosopher has been compared to the true priest of the gods, since forever in Platonism, right? Plotinus uses this image of the philosopher's priest. But it seems that Iamblichus took this more literally than any previous practitioner that we're aware of, going full priest mode in his daily activities. And his biographer, Eunapius, takes this seriously, attributing to him many priestly wonders. Eunapius gives us one anecdote which is maybe worth extracting from the great wealth of superb material he transmits in the present context. Iamblichus was always spending time with his students. He was a devoted teacher, seemingly. Occasionally, however, quoting Wright's translation, quote, he did perform certain rites alone, apart from his friends and disciples, when he worshipped the divine being, end of quote. 
Here, as elsewhere, we glimpse a priestly esoteric reserve on Yambi's part. While embodying the philosophic virtue of sunusia, socialization, being with your philosophic uh, brethren, he also retreats from time to time into a hieratic holy of holies. He loves his students and shares his wisdom with them, but he's on a higher level than they are. Uh, Eunapius emphasizes this, and in doing so makes it clear that this is the proper bearing for a true master of the mysteries of philosophy. And reading Eunapius, which is written admittedly uh, at several removes from Iamblichus, but nonetheless with informants who really are in Iamblichus's philosophic lineage, you do get the impression that this is how Iamblichus carried on. And this hieratic bearing is borne out ideologically by Iamblichus's writings in many different ways. And this brings us to esoteric constructions, lineage and esoteric authority in Iamblichus. Now, memorious listeners will recall episode 17 of this podcast, where we discussed the early Pythagoreans. And in that discussion, we cited a fascinating anecdote from Iamblichus's On the Pythagorean Life, where the philosopher Iamblichus is talking about the fall and subsequent persecution of the Pythagorean sodalities. And this was a somewhat mysterious political coup in southern Italy, which really happened, but it's difficult to say exactly what happened. At any rate, after the fall of the Pythagoreans, according to Iamblichus' account, the disciples of Pythagoras went into hiding and secretly preserved the teachings of the master. Now, these teachings were doubly esoteric because they're preserved in secret, but they're also preserved in the form of akusmata or symbola, mysterious sayings which need hermeneutical expertise to figure out what they mean. And these uh, secret Pythagoreans passed these on from generation to generation. They became, in effect, a subterranean secret society devoted to preserving the truth, right? Now, Iamblichus is drawing on sources for this account. He's not making it up from whole cloth, but be that as it may, the way he depicts this secret society of Pythagoreans says something about how he views the transmission of truth. It's carried out, above all, in secret, to avoid persecution in the case of the Pythagoreans, but also just to avoid wisdom falling into the wrong hands, the hands of the vulgar herd. The herd get very short shrift in Iamblichus. Their religio-magical practices, like standing on characteres, more on that next episode, these are rubbish, according to Iamblichus. And we know this because they are so widespread among the masses. In other words, Iamblichus says that a lot of what we would consider demotic magical practice in the Roman Empire is rubbish. And the way you know that is because everyone does it, right? The implication is that if it were true theurgy, it would necessarily be limited to a select few practitioners, the theurges, and we'll talk more about them in a minute. Since the vulgar crowd are necessarily deluded, and this is in the nature of things, all philosophic truth for Iamblichus is framed as at least potentially esoteric wisdom. His philosophic elitism shines forth across much of his oeuvre, from his scornful hieratic talking down to Porphyry in the De Mysteries, really schooling him. Like, I'm an Egyptian priest, and like, let me just fill you in on the deal, Porphyry. To his accounts of the esotericism of the early Pythagoreans, 
who are clearly put forward as the model for philosophic life. He comes out and says so explicitly in the prologue to On the Pythagorean Life. This is how it's to be done, providing, incidentally, another example of late polytheist hagiography, because his uh, Pythagoras is a kind of polytheist saint, but he's projecting this very late antique image of what it is to be a philosopher back in time to the 5th century BCE. Now, this stance of elite secrecy and silence is apparent across Iamblichus's occasional works, things like little monographs like the De Mysteries and uh, others, but it's by no means absent from his more dry philosophical works either, if we look for it. In the De Anima, Iamblichus contrasts different grades of human souls in several places. There are, it turns out, three types of soul, by the way, which is what we'd expect from the most triadic of ancient thinkers, Iamblichus. And this is also an intriguing parallel with the three Valentinian uh, types of soul. But that's just an aside. I don't draw any conclusions from that. Here's a passage in Dylan and Finnemore's translation from De Anima. Quote, Furthermore, I actually think that the purposes for which souls descend are different, and that they thereby also cause differences in the manner of the descent. For the soul that descends for the salvation, purification, and perfection of this realm is immaculate in its descent. The soul, on the other hand, that directs itself about bodies for the exercise and correction of its own character is not entirely free of passions and was not sent away free in itself. The soul that comes down here for punishment and judgment seems somehow to be dragged and forced. End of quote. So, we can guess which of these three types of soul, and note how they correspond quite nicely with the three types of sublunary daimon discussed last episode, we can guess which of these is the philosophic soul, or perhaps the theurgic soul. That would be the one which descends for the salvation, purification, and perfection of this realm, the Yamblichian bodhisattvas, who enter into incarnation freely for the purpose of bringing the gods into matter and thus bringing the cosmos into accord with its divine prototype. Indeed, as we learn in the De Mysteries, um, the means for doing this work of purification and salvation of all things in the cosmos is precisely theurgy. The point here, though, is the existence of an esoteric elite on an ontological level. Initiates are in some sense initiates by birth, a noetic aristocracy. And that's just how things are. And, you know, those who are sent here to be punished, well, they're just the playthings of fate. And uh, this, for them, is uh, purification by fire. Now, what about the transmission of wisdom, the tradition? There is, of course, for Iamblichus, an alethe paradosin, a true tradition, cognate with Celsus's true account and with other perennialist Platonist formulations we've seen before, in the podcast. But Iamblichus is especially into synthesizing all the traditions he discusses. He emphasizes the symphonia, the essential harmony of a lot of seemingly disparate traditions. And with Iamblichus, I think we see a fully-fledged Platonist synthesis of ideas about barbarian wisdom, philosophy, and perennial truth um, to a degree that we haven't seen yet. This guy really wants to put it all into one uh, crotter and mix it up. Now, Iamblichus, like seemingly all Greek writers, 
employs freely the usual dichotomy of the Greeks and the barbarians, or the Greeks and the non-Greeks. He never really questions this construction, even though it implies that Helene is sort of the default setting for humanity and everyone else is not the default. Nevertheless, he sometimes sets himself outside the Hellenic tradition, rhetorically, that is, uh, whether it be in his adoption of the persona of an Egyptian priest in De Mysterious, when he says, I am a priest and I can tell you stuff from my vantage point of higher wisdom because I'm an Egyptian priest. And sometimes he makes some actually rather shocking statements of barbarian superiority. In one striking passage in the De Mysteries, Porphyry has been asking about why it's important to use invocations in languages like Egyptian. We don't think the gods are Egyptian, do we? No, of course not, says Iamblichus, Abamon. But while all peoples in the world had direct inspiration from the gods, ancient peoples like the Egyptians and the Assyrians have kept theirs much cleaner than the flighty Greeks have. Here Iamblichus has as precedent the well-known O Solon, Solon, all the Greeks are children passage from Plato's Timaeus. And there's plenty of other precedent for this kind of thinking about the relationship between the Hellenic and the older cultural traditions of the Eastern Mediterranean, right, in Platonism. But nevertheless, Platonism always pretty much remains Hellenically chauvinistic or Greco-Romanly chauvinistic in the case of people like Apuleius, even while employing Orientalist tropes of uh, admiration for the mystic East and so on and so forth. Iamblichus's position is pretty strongly pro-barbarian. Porphyry asks, quote, why of meaningful names do we prefer the barbarian to our own? Now, this is Iamblichus answering him. For this again, there is a mystical reason. Mysticos hologos. This is not meaning mystical in the modern sense. This just means basically secret, right? Back to our quote. For since the gods have shown that the entire dialect of the sacred people, such as the Assyrians and the Egyptians, is appropriate for religious ceremonies... For this reason, we must understand that our communication with the gods should be in an appropriate tongue. Also, such a mode of speech is the first and the most ancient, end of quote. Now, listeners will be on fairly familiar territory here. There are sacred languages and not sacred languages. We see this all across uh, the Greek magical papyri. Well, you'll have a, a Greek papyrus saying, and here are the sacred words in Hebrew or, you know, you sometimes find Hebrew texts saying, here are the sacred words in Greek. The point is that you have a prestigious and numinous foreign language that you are citing, even if you're not even actually citing words in that language, which is quite common. Now, listeners might also be wondering, what does he mean by meaningful names? Are there unmeaningful names under discussion? Yes, gentle listener, there are, and we'll come back to them anon. But let's cite another passage further on in this same section of De Mysteries. Quote, and it is necessary that the prayers of the ancients, like sacred places of sanctuary, are preserved ever the same, and in the same manner, with nothing of alternative origin, either removed from or added to them. For this is the reason why all these things in place at the present time have lost their power, both the names and the prayers, because they're endlessly altered according to the inventiveness and illegality of the Hellenes. For the Hellenes are experimental by nature and eagerly propelled in all directions, having no proper ballast 
in them, and they preserve nothing which they've received from anyone else. But even this, they promptly abandon and change it all according to their unreliable linguistic innovation. End of quote. Holy cow. We are, of course, reminded here of the Hermetic text called Asclepius. See episode 105 of this podcast. With its encomium of the true Egyptian wisdom, embodied both in the temple architecture of Egypt and also in the Egyptian language, unpolluted by foreign influence. And though we don't have any evidence that Yamblukus read that particular text, he's definitely occupying a similar thought world as regards culture here. How much of this is his uh, Egyptian persona, and how much of this he actually thinks about the Egyptians is an open question, but it's not a particularly unbelievable that a someone like Yamblikos would think this about the ancient Egyptian language. Incidentally, book eight of the De Mysteries by Yamblikos shows us that he was reading some Hermetica, and this is our best evidence for a philosophic Platonist engaging with this body of texts, this long discussion of the doctrines of Hermes in book eight of the De Mysteries. Usually, as we know, we find Hermes most popular with Christians, weirdly enough. And we talked about that in our discussion of the Hermetica on the podcast. But Iamblichus is the sole surviving Platonist who thinks the Hermetica are a really good place to look for wisdom. Though he does consider the Hermaic way a distinct path of wisdom. He talks about it as such. Anyway, back to our main topic. We can con- contrast Porphyry, who is like Iamblichus from a Semitic origin. So he's Phoenician rather than a Syriac stroke Aramaic speaker like Yamblikos is, but cognate languages and from a similar part of the world, right? They're both from roughly what we would call the Levant today. But Porphyry is smoothly Hellenic across his oeuvre. When he talks about non-Hellenic culture, which he does all the time, it's always from the perspective of a Hellene observing other peoples. Yamblikos is willing to go much further toward assimilating himself to a non-Greek cultural tradition. In speaking of the Asudioi, another ancient people in Greek eyes, but a people with a very vague uh, sort of notional traits, right? So it's a bit unclear what Asudioi can mean a lot of things to Greeks of Iamblichus's day. In referring to these guys, he may be referring to himself. So in this case, that would mean he's letting slip the cloak of an Egyptian priest for a moment and bigging up the Asudioi, who, according to him, is sort of his people as a Syriac or Aramaic speaker. One reading of that is that he is there speaking as Iamblichus the Assyrian. Now, we have a valorized barbarian wisdom tradition, familiar territory within Platonism, and Plotinus, as we've seen in the podcast, is the big exception here in that he pretty much ignores this trope except for one reference to Egyptian hieroglyphs. But Iamblichus takes things a bit further than we're accustomed to, sometimes adopting a barbarian persona. Quite interesting. Now, what about the Hellenes? Well, there is, of course, a Hellenic perennial tradition as well, and it goes back to Pythagoras, but it doesn't start with him. The Pythagorean teachings were inherited from... That's right, Orpheus, via the mysterious figure of Aglaophamos. I never know how to say that name. But anyway, these are semi-divine characters. These teachings were embodied in texts like the Golden Verses and other Pseudo-Pythagorica, which are, of course, authoritative philosophic texts for Iamblichus, though always in need of esoteric hermeneutics to clarify them. 
Plato, of course, occupies an important place in the tradition on the level of rhetoric or of identity politics, but also if we turn to the level of what Iamblichus is actually doing in terms of ideas and concepts, as always with Platonist perennialists, he's in fact using hermeneutics of the extended Plato as the basis for nearly everything he says. So he says Pythagoras and Orpheus, we need to make sure that we uh, read the extended Plato. Although we don't have a strong surviving uh, position statement on the question of Aristotle and whether he can be harmonized with Plato, uh, the general approach in Iamblichus is that Aristotle is simply a commentator within the same tradition as Plato. And the late Christian Platonist Elias, or maybe David, these are some Christian Platonists of the Alexandrian school from a few centuries later. We're not sure who wrote this particular commentary, whether it was Elias or David, whoever it was, says that Iamblichus even went so far as to argue that Aristotle agreed with Plato on the doctrine of forms, which if Iamblichus ever read Aristotle's metaphysics, where he literally says Plato could never get the theory of forms to work, must have required some seriously esoteric hermeneutics to iron that one out. So Aristotle read appropriately is a seamless part of the divine paradosis of truth for Iamblichus. So there you have a basic outline of the wisdom tradition posited by Iamblichus. It possesses really strong authority, and it's all to some degree esoteric. We'll come back to that a bit more in a moment, but now let's talk about a very special tradition constructed by Iamblichus in the De Mysteries. I refer, of course, to Hoi Theurgoi, the Theurgists. For now, I want to bracket the question of how much Iamblichus is simply inventing the theurgists and how much they represent a living tradition of which he is a part, right? Let's just look at how he constructs them, because he's certainly constructing them in this work, whether or not they also are a living tradition or not. This is some very interesting philosophic elitism in action. So who are the theurgists for Iamblichus? We learn lots of things about them in the De Mysteries. The theurgists are purified of every evil and are, in fact, impassable. So they have achieved at least one of the characteristics of the greater kinds that we talked about last time. They're sort of godlike creatures in that they're impassable. So as we saw in the quote from De Anima earlier in this episode, they enter into incarnation freely of their own free wills to sort of save the cosmos. And they're immune to fate. They're impassable. They're immune to... Uh, the, the evils that this world contains. They're also superior to ordinary religious folks. The theurgists are people who are able to behold the gods directly. Not in images, but the gods actually show themselves to the theurgists. Remember the self-revealing quality of the gods that we discussed in the last episode? This is it. They appear to the theurgists. They want to appear to the theurgists. The theurgists are also uniquely able to distinguish the different types of higher being, uh, seemingly by sight. <laughs> so these gods don't self-reveal to just anyone. They reveal themselves only to the theurgists. The theurgists are also able, while still living, to leave their bodies and join the noetic realities. Indeed, while we must stand by our statement that Yamblichian man is earthbound, as opposed to the ceilingless uh, Plotinian practitioner who can just become the universal gods, the theurge is in some ways a god on earth, right? So there's a discussion in which Porphyry asks Iamblichus why 
the theurgists use threats and imprecations on the gods. Why you say, I bind you. This language of threatening the gods and, and ordering them to do things is very familiar to us from sources like the Greek magical papyri, right? So Iamblichus discussing this says, it's not what you think it is. Quote, the theurgist, through the power of arcane symbols, ten dunamin ten aporreton synthematon, we'll talk more about these synthemata in the next episode because they're very important. The theurgist, through these arcane symbols, commands cosmic entities, no longer as a human being or employing a human soul, but existing above them in the order of the gods, uses threats greater than are consistent with his own proper essence. Not, however, with the implication that he would perform that which he asserts, but using such words to instruct them how much, how great, and what sort of power he holds through his unification with the gods, which he gains through knowledge of the ineffable symbols, end of quote. So basically, the gods power you up, the noetic gods, who are above the cosmic gods, and you become sort of temporarily of their rank, even though your essence doesn't change, right? So while you remain here in your body, in the cosmos, the cosmos is yours to command. And lovers of Renaissance theurgy and uh, the work of Marsilio Ficino, in particular, the idea of the Renaissance magus, as uh, formulated by Francis Yates and others, you will be right to see the, the kind of essential characteristics of that magus here in this passage and others like it. It's not that you can become God. It's that you can sort of be unified with God such that the world is at your command, the world being the cosmos, not the universe, but the cosmos, because you become higher in rank than the cosmos. You're sort of speaking with the voice of the noetic gods. Okay, now there's one more delightful characterization of the theurgists and what they do, which makes a nice segue from this section on the construction of an esoteric tradition to our next topic, which is the fascinating kind of esoteric hermeneutics and implicit theory of language going on in Iamblichus. Here's the quotation, quote, granting then that ignorance and deception are faulty and impious, it doesn't follow on this that the offerings made to the gods and divine works are invalid, for it is not pure thought that unites the theurgists to the gods. Indeed, what then would hinder those who are theoretical, theoreticos philosophers, from enjoying a theurgic union with the gods? But the situation is not so. It is the accomplishment of acts not to be divulged and beyond all noesis and the power of the unutterable symbols understood solely by the gods which establishes theurgic union. Hence, we do not bring about these things by noesis alone, for thus their efficacy would be noeric and dependent upon us. But neither assumption is true, for even when we are not engaged in noesis, the symbols themselves, by themselves, perform their appropriate work. And the ineffable power of the gods, to whom these symbols relate, itself recognizes the proper images of itself, not through being aroused by our thought. For it is not in the nature of things containing to be aroused by those contained in them nor of things perfect by things imperfect, nor even of wholes by parts. Hence, it's not even chiefly through our noesis that divine causes are called into actuality, 
But it is necessary for these and all the best conditions of the soul, and our ritual purity, to pre-exist as auxiliary causes. But the things which properly arouse the divine will are the actual divine symbols, synthemata again, and so the attention of the gods is awakened by themselves receiving from no inferior being any principle for themselves of their characteristic activity. End of quote. Okay, first of all, boom. Secondly, we see that the theurge is superior to the Plotinian style of philosopher. Remember that contemplation, theoria, is the chief motive force both of Plotinus's philosophy and also of the generation of the universe itself out of the one in Plotinus' philosophy. So when Iamblichus takes a swipe here at the theoreticos philosophers, he's taking a swipe at Plotinus, but really Porphyry as well, right? He's telling us here, if theoria were really enough to attain to divine union, like you say it is, then all the philosophers would be in a state of divine union. They are not, therefore it is not. So there is our esoteric positioning of the theurges as the higher level even than the more traditional philosophers. If ever there were an example of one-upmanship through a claim to more transcendent divine knowledge, this is it, right? But thirdly, what about these ineffable synthemata? What are these? Okay, again, more on the synthemata next time. But we can say in shorthand that synthemata are traces of divine correspondence in the universe. They can be, quote, little pebbles, rods, or certain woods, stones, wheat, and barley meal. To take one example from the De Mysterious, these have divine power in them and therefore can be used in rituals, right? Gentle listeners will think of all the uh, handbooks of occult properties that we have from antiquity and the Middle Ages and into the modern era. The Hermetic Chiranides is an absolute classic of the genre that was transmitted right through the, the Middle Ages in the East Roman realm. And here, this, this theory of occult properties in material objects is being given some philosophical heft, right? This is a kind of quasi-scientific or at least, let's say, philosophical explanation of how this works. But words are also important for Iamblichus in this context. And this brings us to maybe the most fascinating thing we're going to talk about in this episode. More specifically, the so-called vocis magicae, the strings of unintelligible words, either of notional or real foreign extraction, right? Or simply groupings of vowels, nonsensical palindromes, and so on. Keen listeners will know this genre of vocis magicae by now, but if not, see episode 6, our episodes on the Greek magical papyri with Korshi Dosu, and many other places in the podcast. So these meaningless words, or unintelligible words, according to Iamblichus, and here he makes a move which either makes him utterly naive in his approach to language and signification, or makes him way ahead of his time, and maybe ahead of the freakiest postmodernist out there, right? These words have no meaning to us humans. As far as we're concerned, they have power, and only power. But they do have meanings to the gods. Is meaning here in the cosmos a mimesis of divine power? I think that's basically the gist here. But at any rate, what could better encapsulate the act of the esoteric than postulating words which are, well, ineffable, 
which don't mean anything, and that's the point. In effect, their meaning exists, but it's too much for us to comprehend. They're like hyper words. They're words that are so full of meaning that only the gods can comprehend them, but that meaning is so concentrated that they have direct efficacy and can make amazing stuff happen. So clearly, Yamblichus is also doing for words of power what he did for the occult properties of gemstones and so on. He's giving them a philosophically satisfying uh, explanation, a theoretical backing to match their, to him self-evident, ritual effectiveness. We all agree that these words work, and Porphyry's saying, well, why should they work? They don't mean anything. Iamblichus is saying, kind of, well, that's the point, dummy. These acts of uh, theurgico-philosophical apologetic that Iamblichus is doing here, these especially are, I think, at the heart of the whole academic reception of Yamblikos as not really a philosopher, but a magician, right? He's, he's not doing philosophy, he's superstitious. He believes in this kind of ritual efficacy, he's abandoned logic, and so on and so forth, which has dominated Yamblikan scholarship until recent decades. We'll have more to say on that subject in coming episodes. But listeners who are sort of hip to modern semiotics and linguistic theory might already be questioning whether that's necessarily a good reading of Iamblichus. Now, last but not least, in the little bit of time available to us, because this episode is pretty long, and is it any wonder, since we're trying to access the esoteric in an author as multifacetedly esoteric as Iamblichus, but we need to talk about one major aspect of the esoteric that we've not yet explored in this episode. Let us discuss this concept of the ineffable in Iamblichus. Now, here's the thing about the ineffable. No, but seriously, let's be like the Platonists themselves and talk about the ineffable, fully aware as we are, of the contradictions and paradoxes in which this involves us. We can start here. We know from our first episode on Iamblichus' philosophy that he removes his first principle, the utterly ineffable, to give its quasi-name, completely from the realm of predication. This is the first hypothesis of the Parmenides, or the highest part of the triad represented by the first hypothesis of the Parmenides, the utterly ineffable. We also know that Pantelos Areton, utterly ineffable, is in fact a predication. It's something that tells us that this thing is absolutely ineffable. Now, if this is Iamblichus' actual name for his first principle, right? Because we get this from Damascius, who himself posits a first principle called the absolutely ineffable. So it's possible that Damascius is importing his own terminology back onto Iamblichus here, or alternately, it's possible that Damascius got this terminology from Iamblichus. It's not entirely clear to me from the evidence which is which. But either way, if this is a kind of anti-naming name, right, a name that's supposed to tell you that you cannot name this entity or non-entity, I would argue that Iamblichus is in fact making a rather weak act of linguistic transcendence here. It's in the labyrinths of saying and unsaying that we find in Plotinus, I think, that we gain 
real insights into the power of apophatic language to create a mental space of real emptiness if you're willing to stick with Plotinus on the journey long enough. By contrast, just to say the totally ineffable lacks the performative power of that kind of exploration of self-negating language. So that's my take on this sort of later Platonist approach to ineffability in metaphysics. However, you could argue that there is a strength there too. Instead of calling the first principle the one or good, as Plotinus is wont to do, and then having to return again and again to those terms in order to deny that they are appropriate, right? It's not really the one. It doesn't actually make sense to call it the one. It's not the good for itself. It's the good for other things, like all this sort of stuff. Iamblichus's name, uh, and incidentally, isn't the absolutely ineffable kind of a perfect example of an asemon onoma, a meaningless name, right? But not in the way that Iamblichus meant when he was talking about the barbarian strings of vowels and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, if there's such a thing as an asemon onoma, this is it, right? But instead of this kind of self-recursive apophasis that we find in Plotinus, maybe Iamblichus's utterly ineffable moniker was meant to serve as a concise reminder that as far as the first principle goes, all conversation is pointless. And in our surviving evidence, we're singularly lacking in discourses of Iamblichus on this more rarefied, non-existent reality. In Book 8 of the De Mysterious, he does talk about this sort of ineffable father figure, but it's in the context of the teachings of Hermes. And he calls it a lot of things like father and stuff like that, which is very typical of Hermetica. It doesn't seem to be Iamblichus speaking as Iamblichus. So lacking as we do much Iamblichian apophatic discourse, maybe he really followed a kind of Wittgensteinian logic and kept his mouth shut about the things about which we cannot speak, right? I doubt it, but you never know. If there was a strong apophatic discourse in Iamblichus to do with the higher realms of non-being, the place we would find it would likely be his Parmenides commentary, which we only possess a few fragments of cited by Damascius. Now, when we get to Damascius in the podcast, you will see a kind of ultimate apophatic logic chopping that chops so finely that your brain explodes and maybe the whole thing amounts to a kind of uh, performative, well, you'd have to call it really practical mysticism through reading. But that makes it difficult to assess Iamblichus because Iamblichus on the highest uh, non-reality because one suspects that the Damascian lens is uh, maybe distorting the evidence a little bit. So that's one aspect of what we might term the Iamblichian esoteric of ineffability, right? Hiding the nature of the ineffable by revealing it through calling it the ineffable. But we can't really see the depth contours through which Iamblichus laid this stuff out. We can see, though, with certainty that he was very concerned to remove his first principle from discourse, predications, knowledge, noesis, from, well, everything. Fine. Now, there's one final piece of the Iamblichian esoteric where I think he adds a new dimension to the esoteric, to Platonism, that wasn't there before him. He again and again refers to the synthemata, the divine traces in the cosmos, the material objects with occult properties, right? And to the anomata barbara, the meaningless words, as areta ineffable. Now let's have a closer look at areton. Uh, not for the first time on this podcast, since areton is officially the Schweppes' favorite Greek word. But it's always worth another look at this fascinating word. The term 
can be translated as unsayable, if you want to be literal or etymological. But as we've discussed before on the show, it originally meant not to be spoken in the context of cultic mysteries. That which could not be said in earshot of the uninitiated. This was what was arreton. Doesn't mean ineffable in any kind of absolute sense. It means you have to keep silent about it for cultic reasons. Later, from at least Philo of Alexandria onwards, it's adopted by philosophic Platonism to denote a reality which cannot be said because it literally cannot be said. It's ineffable in the strong sense, right? Now, for Iamblichus, both semantic spheres are in play at the same time because he's in a thought world where the cultic secret of the highest initiation is, of course, precisely the unmediated vision of the highest realities. Theurgic union is initiation, right? Platonic philosophy is initiation, as Plato himself argues in the Phaedrus and elsewhere. So there's this nice dovetailing between must not and cannot be said, present in the Platonist term, arreton, as it's developed over time. Okay, so far so good. So what does Iamblichus mean when he calls the symbola and synthemata, the gods' objects of power, scattered throughout the cosmos, when he calls these ineffable, or when he calls the powers of the gods themselves ineffable. Now, these synthemata can be things like rocks and stuff, right? So they're clearly not ineffable qua material objects, bodies. These things are about as effable as anything is. And he also calls theurgic ritual practices ineffable. And the operative words spoken are ineffable. So he must be referring not to their outward appearance, but to their inner power. Basically, without going on about this in all the endless curly cues of apophatic self-negation, which the subject really demands, and long-time listeners will understand what kind of self-sacrifice I'm making to tear myself away from doing just that, uh, without doing just that, I think what's going on here is that Arreton for Iamblichus has come to have a new, bigger semantic sphere including ideas of cultic secrecy and including formal ineffability, but also including more than a whiff of what we probably would most felicitously translate as occult. So the material substances, the rituals, the wokes magikai, the powers of the gods are all occult properties, uh, which give them powers beyond what they would seem to be capable of doing. Again, this is a new wrinkle in esoteric discourse, at least on this philosophic plane. Iamblichus was a serious innovator for such a self-proclaimed servant of the unchanging eternal wisdom and Platonist literalist. Now, it seems like with this all too brief discussion of elements of the esoteric in Iamblichus, we should be ready, finally, to come to grips with the long-mooted great theurgy debate a.k.a. response of the Master Abamon to Porphyry's letter and solutions to the problems contained therein, a.k.a. on the mysteries of the Egyptians, Chaldeans, etc., a.k.a. De Mysteriis. But before we get to that text and dive deep into what's going on in it, we will be diving, as promised, into the lush jungles of late antique philosophy with Eunapius of Sardis as our guide in one of our special storytime episodes. And who knows, there may be a few other surprises in store. But in the meantime, till next time, stay ineffable. Uh, secret. I mean, occult. I mean, esoteric. <laughs>